It's 6 p.m., and you're tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Tuesday, August 29th, and this is the KVMR Evening News. I'm Julia Jim. Have you ever heard of Lolita the Orca? After more than five decades in captivity, she's died, and her death has sparked discussion about the ethics surrounding captive marine mammals. The California Report brings us the details. Then, after a look at regional news and weather, KVMR's Allie Lightfoot takes us to the scene of Grass Valley's third annual Love Walk. That's all before we hear from retired Fed economist Gary Zimmerman in this week's Economic Report. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. And these are some California stories we're following. Attorney General Rob Bonta is suing the Chino Valley School District over its policy that would involuntarily out transgender students to their family. The policy forces staff and teachers to notify parents within three days if a student asks to use a different name or pronoun. Bonta says the policy violates several constitutionally protected rights. This discriminatory policy violates the constitutional right extended to all California students to be treated equally in all aspects of education, regardless of their gender, gender identity or gender expression. It violates California's Equal Protection Clause, and it violates California's constitutionally protected right to privacy. In Northern California, Pacific Gas and Electric is preparing for dry winds starting tomorrow morning. The utility says it sent out notifications to customers in areas where it may need to turn power off to reduce the risk of wildfire, mainly in parts of seven counties west of Sacramento Valley. PG&E predicts approximately 8,000 people could have their power shut off starting around 3 a.m. tomorrow morning. And in Sacramento, the state assembly passed Senate Bill 403, which bars discrimination based on caste with an overwhelming 50 to 3 vote. The bill was amended to de-emphasize the word caste after passing the Senate. It now goes back to the Senate for a re-vote, making it one step closer to Governor Gavin Newsom's desk. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine comprising its School of Medicine and Adult and Children's Health Systems, working together to advance knowledge and improve lives. StanfordMedicine.org The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. During the pandemic, the state relaxed rules around physical participation in public state board meetings. A bill advancing through the legislature wants to reinstate these carve-outs. CalMatters politics reporter Samia Kamal explains. This bill from Santa Cruz Senator John Laird is seeking to reinstate a more flexible approach to public meetings that came about due to COVID. Even though members of the public were able to participate in state board meetings virtually long before the pandemic, this wasn't exactly the case for people leading those meetings. Board members had to post their location if they were remote. They also had to allow public access at that location, even if it was their home. 
these rules went back into place this past July. If the bill becomes law, boards will only have to post the address for one meeting site, and only one board or staff member has to be there physically. Supporters say that this bill would make it easier for people to serve on these government bodies, which could increase diversity. But opponents worry it could cut down on chances for Californians to hold officials accountable in person. The bill passed the Senate in May and is awaiting an Assembly Appropriations Committee hearing. That's Cal Matters' Samia Kamal. The recent death of an orca held in captivity in Florida for more than five decades has invigorated calls to release other marine mammals, including Corky, an orca at San Diego SeaWorld. At the same time, some California lawmakers are pushing federal regulators to demand better care for marine mammals in captivity. KRCB's Greta Mart has the story, one personal to her. That Florida orca, whose stage name was Lolita, was also known as Toki. She was captured in Penn Cove on Whidbey Island in Washington State when she was about three years old. I grew up hearing her story from my dad, who was then a news cameraman for Seattle station King TV. My dad filmed another whale capture a year after Toki was taken. It aired on the evening news and he said shocked audiences around the region. Here's King TV reporter Don McGaffin in 1971. What little work is done is actually physiological, aimed at keeping the killer whale alive in a tank, which keeps the exhibitor alive at the box office. What isn't known is far more important than what is known. Half a century later, scientists do know a lot more about these creatures, how they communicate, and how far and deep they range. But a group of U.S. lawmakers says care standards for marine mammals in captivity haven't been meaningfully updated since the 1980s despite plenty of calls for change, especially after the 2013 documentary Blackfish. Earlier this month, the congressional group wrote a letter to federal regulators demanding updates. Congressman Jared Huffman, who represents California's North Coast, co-authored the letter. Most people understand that these standards are almost willfully obsolete. They have allowed for decades these highly intelligent, highly social migratory animals to be confined in very cruel and inadequate conditions. He says that new standards could mean the end of marine mammals in captivity. And that's probably why there's been so much foot dragging by USDA all these years. They don't want to issue a regulation that's going to have such a sweeping effect on this industry. The U.S. Department of Agriculture didn't return our request for comment. Meanwhile, before her death in mid-August, plans were far underway to release Toki back into the Pacific Ocean. More than 100 people gathered for her vigil. Because her spirit is still with us, and it's with her family, finally swimming free with them. Oh, if I could talk to Toki, I would say, uh, I am so sorry that we didn't get you home. Susan Berta and Howard Garrett of the Orca Network spent three decades campaigning to bring Toki home. Their nonprofit is working to end captivity for all marine mammals. Garrett says advocates around the country are now focusing on getting Corky, the captive orca at SeaWorld San Diego, back to the wild. There is a, a location and there is funding and a project now to return Corky to her home waters in British Columbia. Work he says he'll do in Toki's name. For the California Report, I'm Greta Mart.
And that's the California Report for Tuesday, August 29th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Turning now to a look at the regional weather forecast from the National Weather Service. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, widespread haze before 3 a.m., clear with a low around 60. Wednesday, sunny with a high near 90. Wednesday night, clear with a low around 61. For Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, clear with a low around 42. Wednesday, sunny with a high near 81. And Wednesday night, clear with a low around 46. And for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, Tonight, widespread haze between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m., areas of smoke after 3 a.m. Wednesday, sunny and hot with a high near 98. Wednesday night, clear with a low around 64. A red flag warning has been installed for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, and that's in effect from today at 11 p.m. to tomorrow at 8 p.m. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Creating Communities Beyond Bias partnered with the Grass Valley Downtown Foundation to offer a day of reflection, community involvement, and fun for the third annual Love Walk in Grass Valley this weekend. KVMR's Allie Lightfoot attended and filed this report. What's up, y'all? We have a hip hop congress. We got some music for y'all, so gather around, we having a good time. That's hip-hop artist Raza, joined by Vinny on the Beat, performing at the third annual Love Walk, which took place in downtown Grass Valley on Sunday. Indigenous soul artist and flautist Mignon Heli led us into the opening ceremonies and blessings, including an inspiring speech from Shelley Covert, spokesperson for the Nevada City Rancheria Nisanon tribe. The day was filled with music and activities, including a workshop on the history of hip-hop and its roots in peacemaking and community building, hosted by Natalie Polly and Rocky Zapata of Hip Hop Congress. I spoke with Grass Valley resident and co-organizer Jamal Walker about how his son's experience ignited the community into action and a show of solidarity that continues today for this annual event. Uh, in 2017, my son had an incident where he was walking down downtown Grass Valley here on Mill Street and he was being uh, targeted uh, by some uh, young uh, white men in a car as they were slow driving down the street and taunting him and calling him all kind of names and doing that kind of stuff. But that treatment happened the length of Mill Street and then went up around the corner. So he was pretty terrified, you know, because it was just him and a few other guys in the car that he didn't know if they were going to jump out and jump them and they were messing them with them for quite a while. So found out about that, and I uh, went on to social media to talk about it, and uh, that went viral. And then we had a lot of community members that were concerned, and we had someone who mentioned, hey, why don't we meet out on Saturday? You know, this incident happened, like, on a Thursday, and that Saturday we were out here on the street. Somebody said, hey, why don't we meet out here and, and um, 
and just so, show support for Imani and my son. And uh, that happened, and we uh, that Saturday we had about 1,200 people on the street. Wow. So it was pretty amazing um, that the community showed up. And really what it was about, I put a, a challenge out to the community saying that, you know, we should do better than we are doing about looking out after each other. And uh, we can do better than this. So that's kind of what spawned Love Walk. And so the day of Love Walk is just all about that, just sharing love with each other, recognizing our collective humanity, and uh, letting go of the labels for the day. Right. So, How do you think the event has evolved? And really, how has the sort of state of this movement, you know, that, that also came out of Black Lives Matter, how do you think it's evolving? Just people trying to be allies and support and show up and not ignore yeah. these issues. Yeah. Well, I think that it's hard because um, we're, we're having to learn how to communicate, I think, all over again. So hopefully Love Walk is something that um, can help inspire that in people, you know, being willing to talk and connect, maybe break bread together and get to know each other. But I think as a, as a collective, you know, we have a long way to go in terms of um, letting go of all the labels, letting go of all the stereotypes that we have about ourselves and each other, and be more willing to listen, to just listen to one another. So um, fortunately, we're doing a workshop today called The Listening Gym. We're going to teach people how to do some of that. So um, I think that that's, that's really what it is. We have to gather more with each other. Uh, let go of our labels, let go of our politics, leave all that stuff at the door so that we can get to know who the human being is. Great. Yeah. And for people who might want to be involved that are just learning about all this, um, can you give them some information about how they can get involved or maybe attend future events like yeah. that? Well, they can uh, get a hold of us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. It's called Creating Communities Beyond Bias. And they can uh, send us some information about who they are, and, and, and we can let them know about what we have happening next. All right. Thank you so much, Jamal Walker. This is Allie Lightfoot for KBMR. The Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City just held their annual Jackson Hole Economic Symposium in Wyoming. They analyzed structural shifts in our global economy, pandemic-era inflation issues, labor markets, and more. Coming up, KBMAR's Paul Emery speaks with retired Fed economist Gary Zimmerman to help make sense of it all. This economic report is sponsored by Rick Kalb, wealth management advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983, on Spring Street in Nevada City. Rick, K-A-L-B dot com. Uh, Gary, uh, welcome back to KVMR. Uh, the Federal Reserve was making a lot of news over the weekend. So what was going on that attracted so much media attention? Paul, the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, which is one of the 12 um, regional Federal Reserve Banks around the country, was holding their annual Jackson Hole Economic Symposium in Wyoming. This is a yearly conference. It's an important meeting of Federal Reserve policymakers. It would be the seven Federal Reserve governors and the 12 Federal Reserve Bank presidents, as well as global central bankers, um, academics and economists from business and financial world. So um, and all, all of them are interested in and you know, focus on monetary policy and economic issues. And so it's a it's a, a big group. So, Gary, what kind of economic issues did the conference address this year 
And give us a description. Maybe tell us why they are important to central banks like the Fed, as well as academics. Well, Paul, that's an easy one. Lots of information and copies of the research papers are now or will soon be available on the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City's public website. The focus of the conference for 2023 was structural shifts in the global economy. Um, that would include looking at, you know, around the world, or major economies, um, economic constraints that have developed, um, global supply issues that you know, appeared during COVID, um, inflation issues, um, labor markets, you know, basically you know, critical issues that um, central banks are looking at and governments are looking at today. And the research papers are presented by academics, uh, by government economists, central bank economists, and the business and financial economists. And they present the research, and it's discussed at the meeting. And you know, typically, there are about 120 attendees and combination of policymakers, economists, academics, and the news media. So, um, you know, they're looking at important issues for understanding you know, sort of where where economies are going and how monetary policy is working. That's a lot of material. <laughs> yes. So the Fed chairman's speech, uh, it really did attract a lot of media attention. Do you consider it one of the highlights of the conference? Oh, yes. Yeah. Normally, one of the highlights of the conference is the presentation on the outlook for the economy and especially Fed monetary policy by the Federal Reserve chairperson, in this case, uh, Jay Powell. And in this year was clearly no exception given given the you know uncertainty about how where the economy is going how fast inflation is falling um so forth and his remarks at the conference are a very important way for the fed to to communicate with the public with news media financial markets investors businesses government consumers about you know what likely fed policy actions may be over the next year or so and and that's important for all of us for planning and making business financial consumer decisions so definitely it is a highlight um, this year and and usually it is well gary uh, did fed chair uh, jay powell give any signals about future monetary policy and the fed's efforts to slow inflation Oh, yes, he did, Paul. As I you know, reviewed his remarks at the conference, it was clear he wanted to be very emphatic that the Fed is focused on bringing down the inflation rate to the Fed's goal of 2%. And that's important because that was a very strong message to the financial markets and the economy that Fed policymakers are not yet convinced that they have done enough, that they've slowed the economy enough with uh, higher interest rates. Um, they're not confident enough that maybe they have haven't done enough to bring down inflation uh, all the way to their 2% goal over the next year or two. And so, you know, that that has pol major policy implications. Okay, Gary. So just what does that mean? It sounds like you expect that the Fed is more likely to raise interest rates again this year rather than lowering the rates. What does that mean? Good question, always, Paul. Um, as I reviewed his remarks, it seemed that he was pretty he was pretty clear that uh, the Fed will continue to evaluate the course of inflation and economic conditions, and and they're concerned also that the strong economy and low unemployment, you know, the economy might be too strong for inflation to slow. And so, you know, I think he made it clear that the Fed may find that it'll be necessary to continue to raise the short term overnight interest rate target at the 
months ahead, um, maybe another once or twice, and that would, you know, that could move up the Fed's target interest rate on overnight funds from to um, from where it is today to six to six and a quarter percent range. Um, so that's a that's a pretty important <laughs> bit of information. They may not be finished yet raising rates. Well, one more question for today, Gary. When is the next Fed policy meeting, and will the Fed policymakers be updating their projections for the rest of 23 and 24? Yes, Paul. Their uh, their next meeting to make monetary policy will be on September 19th and 20th, so about about three weeks out or so. And the Fed policymakers, you know, will also after uh, that meeting. Um, publish their latest projections for the economy, inflation, and what their projected interest rate uh, targets will be as of the end of, you know, this year and next, and uh, and that will be that will give us a lot of information on what they're expecting over the next several years for the economy, for inflation, monetary policy, and um, those projections you know, are something we want to watch for clues to what they're expecting. So we want to watch watch for that data. I mean, if the economy continues to grow at an average pace, labor markets remain tight, and inflation continues to slow towards the Fed's uh, 2% inflation goal, you know, based on Chairman Powell's remarks at the conference, we may still get another one or two quarter point or 25 basis point increases in short-term interest rates um, in, within the next few months. However, you know, on the other side, if inflation slows faster and the, and the economy keeps growing um, and the unemployment rate stays low, the Fed may decide to pause their increases and we, you know, <laughs> may well see them begin to slowly lower interest rates. But, you know, again, that's not expected, I think, by most until you know, probably next year. Um, but, you know, we also had a National Association of Business Economics forecasters um, this last week who are, were um, sort of shifting their expectations from their last survey. They're, they're now about 70 percent of them are now looking for a soft landing for the economy. You know, low inflation and no recession. Um, that's you know, as opposed to 30 percent who were thinking that to be at their last um, forecast. So that's a that's a a, a good sign from the private sector um, economists. Um, so you know. I'll be looking at those projections that the policymakers you know, put out there to to see you know, what they're thinking and um, you know whether their projections show that they expect inflation to be controlled and lowered to the two percent goal by the end of this year, next year, 2025. Um, so you know, it's you know that's important information in in those uh, projections that um, tell us whether the Fed is likely to you know, begin relaxing policy or whether they will continue to put the brakes on if they think the economy is growing <laughs> too fast and inflation is not going down fast enough. So lots going, lots going on there. But I think the, the clue is uh, we'll, we'll want to look carefully at those projections when they're released in September. Well, one thing for sure, it's an election year next year. So this will be big news, whatever. <laughs> okay, thank you. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and is currently a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria. He teaches courses in economics and finance. 
That's our newscast for this Tuesday, August 29th. Head over to our website, kvmr.org, or subscribe to the KVMR News Podcast to hear more. KVMR gets support from listeners like you and Milkman Toner Company, providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners. Carrying remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support. Serving Northern California counties from San Francisco to Lake Tahoe. MilkmanCompany.com Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Julia Jem, and I hope you have a great night.